Is it on now? Yeah. Is that better or worse? Better. Okay. Good. Okay. So, um, so I have to say when I selected November 9th, several months ago as my date to give grand rounds, I didn't really think it through. <laughs> and I appreciate that all that those of you who are here are here. Um, I also wanted to say a little bit about how I decided to talk about this particular topic today. I'm talking about intranasal medications in the pediatric patients in the emergency setting. And the reason I decided to talk about this topic is, as Shalene mentioned, we now have a second pediatric emergency medicine subspecialist working on our emergency department with me. Um, and it became clear to me fairly quickly that the use of intranasal medications for various indications in the emergency department has changed a lot um, since I finished training nine years ago. And so it was really exciting for me to really look into this topic. And I'm excited to present this information to you because not only is it very useful for me in the emergency department, I think it's useful in pretty much every pediatric setting. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, I just wanted to remind everybody that you can find out if one of the pediatric ED attendings is working by looking in Am I On. There's a little tab for ED, which stands for Emergency Department, and then under that there's a special line that says Pediatric Attending, and either myself or Ann O'Connor, our other new PEM person, are listed if we're on, and I really encourage you to give us a call if you're sending a patient to the Emergency Department and let us know what's going on. On and, and what you hope to achieve by the ED visit because it really, really helps us to get that communication. All right. Um, so um, this, this, is, this is actually where it started for me. Um, so you're saying the nose can be used for more than just smelling? Yes, it can. Um, and the most important thing I will tell you guys about today, bar none, is about a website called intranasal.net. Who has gone to intranasal.net so far? Anyone? It's an awesome website. Um, I don't know who set it up, but um, it's, it's a great resource. It's got a huge repository of information about intranasal medications, including weight-based dosing tables and a fairly comprehensive literature review. And so some of the literature that, that I'm presenting today and some of the graphics that I'll show today come from intranasal.net. Okay, so what are the advantages of giving medications intranasally? They're easy to use really convenient. Um, we'll talk about how to administer these medications shortly. They're safe. Um, there's no high um, peak serum levels, so we don't have the respiratory depression that we can see with IV medications. Um, it saves time. It's really easy to give a medication intranasally. You don't need um, an IV which is really helpful, especially when kids are in acute pain. It's rapidly effective, has onset within two, between two and 15 minutes, depending on what you're using these medications for. Um, leads to faster care and faster discharge, which is, which is good for everybody. Um, we talked about the fact that there are no shots, so it's painless. You don't need any special training to give intranasal medications. It's very simple. There's extensive literature support, some of which I'll talk about today, and patients and parents and clinicians and staff members really like it. So it's sort of a win-win-win, as Michael Scott would say. Okay, so we're going to talk about intranasal medications for pain control, sedation, 
Briefly, we'll touch on these medications for status epilepticus and for opiate overdose. Okay, so what are the benefits of the nose? Why do, we, why do we think about using the nose? The blood supply to the nose is quite robust, as anyone who has ever bonged their nose will know. Um, also, our patients who like to put heroin and cocaine up their noses know very well. Um, the anterior portion of the nose has a relatively large surface area, and that's the primary site for drug, drug absorption. Um, the venous drainage from the nose avoids the liver avoids first pass metabolism, um, so goes right from the nose into the SVC, which is really nice. And then there's this really cool thing called the nose-brain pathway, um, which you'll see from this picture that the olfactory mucosa, which is the smelling area of the nose, is in direct contact with the brain and the CSF, um, which is right in the upper nasal cavity, right above the cribriform plate. Um, so the olfactory mucosa contains olfactory cells that traverse the cribriform plate and extend right up into the cranial cavity. So there's this direct connection. Medications absorbed across the mucosal cavity directly enter the CSF. They're rapidly transported by molecular transport right across this mucosa into the brain and skips the blood-brain barrier to go right into the CSF. And this is obviously a rapid direct route of delivery to the brain. Okay, so bioavailability, I'm sure everybody knows it's how much of an administered medication actually ends up in the bloodstream where we want it to go. Um, IV medications are 100% bioavailable. <clears throat> Most oral medications are only 5 to 10% bioavailability because they're destroyed and broken down in the gut, and then we talked about first-pass metabolism in the liver. Um, the bioavailability of nasal medications is pretty variable, and there are a bunch of factors um, that lead to that, such as molecular size, pH, lipophilicity, kind of molecular um, characteristics. And so this is a list of some of the medications that we commonly give intranasally, and you can see that there's pretty wide variability in the bioavailability. So ketamine has a 40 to 50 percent bioavailability when given intranasally. Midazolam has a much higher bioavailability in that way, as do fentanyl and naloxone. And those are going to be um, some of the medications I'll focus on most today. Okay, so in order to optimize the bioavailability, there are a couple of um, features that we think about. <clears throat> we want to minimize the volume of medication that we give, so we want to maximize the concentration so we can give as much as possible um, in as little as possible. We want to maximize mucosal coverage and minimize the amount of medication that's lost to runoff. So we use a special device to give the medications called a mucosal atomization device. How many people in here have used a mucosal atomization device? Okay, so maybe like a quarter? Excellent. I'm glad I'm talking about this. All right. And in order to maximize the absorptive mucosal surface area, we can use both nostrils. And that just gives us a little more space to work with. Okay, so when intranasal medications are dripped into the nose, when they're given in a liquid form, the drops easily run down into the pharynx and are swallowed, so they essentially become oral medications, and we talked about the lower bioavailability of medications when they're given orally. Um, and so in order to try to minimize that, you can give the drops slowly, which requires holding down your patient um, for a longer period of time, which is obviously suboptimal. Um, and that sort of leads to one other thing that I, that I wanted to mention, which is that 
um, as I'm now an old person, when I started training, um, we just held everybody down um, to do procedures. And you guys remember, some of you guys remember papoose and you just papoosed them and held them down. And that was, <clears throat> that was how we did it. But we now live in an age of, of kinder, gentler, more pain-free um, medicine. And it's actually a beautiful thing to watch. And so um, for me, this is just another way to provide a, a more pain-free experience for our patients. Um, so we don't want to have to hold them down like that in order to provide them with the more pain-free experience. It kind of defeats the purpose. Okay. And then, so an atomizer is what we're talking about using for giving these medications nasally. Um, it basically turns the medication into a spray, and the spray sticks to the mucosal surface of the nose and is absorbed and it's given rapidly so only requires brief holding we'll talk a little bit more about positioning in a moment um, this is a graph from about 10 years ago and this was a study of ddavp um, and and this graph shows plasma ddavp concentration after spray administration versus drop administration and you can see that serum levels are much higher when the spray is used um, and the smaller the microliter the smaller the the, the, um, the size of each little spraylet, um, the better, the higher the serum concentration. And so this is just a graphic form um, of explanation of why the atomizer is, is really helpful. So here are some pictures of this mucosal atomization device. One of them is called Mad Nasal, which I like. Um, they're fairly cheap. I just did a Google search, and you can buy um, the little tips for 5 to $10 each, um, depending on whether they include the tip and the syringe itself. So you, you can actually purchase these pretty pretty easily. Um, I was going to bring some to play with, but it turns out we're, we're in a shortage. Um, so I asked our ED stocking person if it was okay if I took a few, and she said, well, actually, um, we're, we're running really low. And I wonder if that's because this is sort of a hot way of giving medications lately these days, and people are using this more and more. Um, but I'm sorry I couldn't bring you guys toys to play with today. All right, so, so how much volume can you give? How much can you put up, up a little nose? Um, the ideal volume is pretty low, just 0.2 to 0.3 mLs per nair. Um, volumes higher than 1 milliliter per nostril are not directly reliably absorbed um, because the mucosal surface becomes saturated and then you have runoff. So ideally 0.2 to 0.3 mLs maximum um, per nair. You can go up to 1 mL per nair. So as, as you guys can tell, that requires a more concentrated solution of the medications. Um, and so when you're ordering these medications, you always want to choose the most concentrated solution available. And we'll talk more about that for each specific medication. Um, if you still need to use a larger volume, a couple of things you can do. One is that you can divide the dose in half and use both nostrils. Some of these medications burn a little bit, midazolam in particular. And so um, you, you can have a little bit less participation when you try to do that method. Um, if the volume is still too large, you can also um, titrate the medication. So you could do, you could give it once, and then 10 to 15 minutes later, you can give a second dose. So those are a couple of options. Um, so what's the best position for giving this medication? First of all, if there's mucus or blood in the nair, you need to suction it out because you want to expose the mucosa of the nose to the medication. The optimal positioning is um, kind of laying down with the head back. 
um, with their neck extended in a sitting position. Um, this is not possible with any of my patients, pretty much, because if they need intranasal medication, um, they're either not cooperative or they're in a lot of pain and discomfort and their kids. Um, so what I like to do is have, especially for young children, um, not for teenagers, is to have the parents hold the child in their lap and, um, and then you can give the, the medication intranasally in that way. Um, that works well. And then remember, if the patient is using any kind of nasal, nasal vasoconstrictor like Afrin or neosinephrine, um, you're going to have reduced drug absorption. So you want to make sure you're asking about that. Okay, this is, this is something that um, is really important. Um, so a common problem with intranasal medications is that the clinician fails to give an adequate dose of the drug because they're used to giving IV medications and are afraid to give a seemingly high dose um, of, of an IV medication versus via the nose because we often do use the formulation that's used for IV administration, for intranasal administration. Um, so for example, um, well, we'll talk about, about doses in a little bit, um, but to sedate a child for a procedure, the dose of midazolam is 0.4 to 0.5 um, milligrams per kilogram. And so in a 20 kilo child, that can be 10 milligrams of midazolam. So you guys hear 10 milligrams of midazolam, that sounds like a lot of midazolam, especially if you're using the IV formulation. Um, but if you don't use an adequate dose, then you won't achieve a therapeutic threshold um, um, and you won't have an adequate effect. Um, and so we talked about bioavailability a little bit. Um, and as you know, as we, as we saw, um, for oral medications, we, we often have to give a much higher dose um, because of bioavailability for each medication. Um, for IM medications, the general rule is that it's about two times the IV dose. Um, and again, I'm going to give you specific do dosing parameters for all of these IM medications, but that's a general rule. And if you keep that in the back of your head, I think that kind of might help um, with that sticker shock when you see what the dose of the medication is when you order it. Okay, so the first indication for intranasal medications that I wanted to talk about is pain control. Um, and there used to be this perception that pain in children and infants wasn't important because they wouldn't remember it. Um, and this has been, been, been proven wrong, and I don't need to talk about that too much with this audience. Um, and there have also been times that our consultants have requested that we didn't give pain medications, for example, morphine for appendicitis pain, um, because that, there was a thought that that would interfere with the diagnosis, and this has also been proven to be a myth. Um, so the third thing is that IV placement takes time. So even with a compassionate set of providers, um, in order to order a medication um, and place an IV, that takes time. And so this is a way to give medication for pain quickly um, without needing to wait for, for IV placement in order to give the medications. Okay, so when can we use intranasal pain meds? Um, we can use them in any setting where a patient has pain and doesn't have an IV. So in the clinic or ward setting, if you're doing painful things like dressing changes um, or a painful procedure that you need to do, intranasal medication is a great option. In the pre-hospital or EMS setting, um, this, these kinds of medications are being used more and more, um, specifically mostly for orthopedic injuries and for burns, but in any situation where the pre-hospital provider is seeing that the child is in pain. Um, there's a lot of literature about pre-hospital providers being reluctant to give pain medications to children, um, and there was uh, a study that was published 
this year in pre-hospital emergency care um, that talked about um, the fact that only 5% of um, kids who are transported to the hospital receive opioid and, um, medications even if they have an obvious painful injury. Um, the only measured change that they saw in this study um, after instituting a protocol to try to increase um, pain medication use in kids was in intranasal fentanyl administration. Um, and we see this actually in our area all the time. Um, Shalene was talking about um, a grant that I'm a co-PI on, which is an uh, emergency medical services for children grant, um, which involves educating pre-hospital providers about um, taking care of children. And one of the big focuses of the grant is pain medication administration. And so we see um, that our pre-hospital providers are, are wonderful about giving um, intranasal fentanyl in particular. Um, the sad thing is that once the child arrives in our emergency department, I think we're much less good about following up. <clears throat> so anyway, this is really helpful in the pre-hospital setting. And then in the ED, we can use intranasal pain medications for burns, fractures, even abdominal pain, or other causes of medical pain. All right, so um, fentanyl um, so has a little, sounds like a little bit of a bad word, and we all know that when it's misused, fentanyl can be very dangerous, um, but I, I want to try to empower us to use it um, when needed in our pediatric patients. Um, it's a great example of a medication that works really well when given via the intranasal route. Um, the first reason is that it has low molecular weight, so it travels uh, by molecular transport, as we talked about, really easily. Um, it's lipophilic, which means that it easily crosses a lipid membrane. Um, cell membranes are made of lipids, um, so easily crosses over into, um, crosses cell membranes, <clears throat> excuse me, and enters the bloodstream and the CSF. Um, and then the third thing is that um, fentanyl comes in concentrated um, formulations. So here at DHMC, we, we carry the 50 microgram per ml concentration of fentanyl which we can use well for intranasal administration. Um, there also are formulations that are even more concentrated. There's a 150 per microgram per ml concentration that we don't have here. Um, and then there's a medication called sufentanil, which is a more highly concentrated form that can be used in, in older children and adults, which I won't talk about too much. Okay, so we're used to using ibuprofen for acute pain. Um, in comparison, um, intranasal fentanyl is safe, faster, effective, painless, and easier to deliver, and you can also titrate it, and you can also reverse it, so it's wonderful. Um, we'll talk through each of these different features in a moment, um, but the first study that I wanted to mention um, was done by Kendall and published in 2001, and they looked at 404 children aged 3 to 16 with fractures, and they compared intranasal fentanyl with intramuscular morphine, um, and they found that the intranasal um, administration route was faster, less uncomfortable, and there were no difference in adverse effects, and patients, parents, and nursing staff all liked it better. So even 15 years ago, um, people were starting to use this. <clears throat> Okay, so we all want to make sure that we're doing things that are safe, and I think the most important thing to know about intranasal fentanyl in kids is that it's safe. And this is a theoretical example of serum levels of an opiate. Um, so you can see the blue line shows um, IV medication administration, um, and you can see that there's this sort of huge rise in the serum level of the medication, and it rises over that red line, which is the threshold for respiratory depression, whereas the purple line shows intranasal medication administration, and you can see that while it's crossing over the therapeutic 
efficacy threshold, that lower black line, um, it doesn't even achieve the, the respiratory depression threshold. So the way that the drug is absorbed really helps it, helps it be safe, um, which is really helpful. Okay, it's fast. Um, several studies have shown a dramatically decreased time to opiate delivery in the emergency department setting with the use of intranasal fentanyl. A lot of the literature about intranasal um, fentanyl and midazolam use, and dexmedetomidine actually, comes from Australia. Um, so there's a physician named Meredith Borland in Australia who's done a lot of the studies. Um, she did a study in 2008 that was a retrospective study. They looked at more than 600 children um, giving IN fentanyl for acute pain, mostly fractures and abdominal pain, but also other indications of acute pain in the ED. Um, and they found that the time to opiate delivery decreased from 53 to 23 minutes, um, which was a really kind of staggering difference to me. Um, turns out that there's a metric that we're being judged on, um, which has to do with giving pain medication within 30 minutes of coming into the emergency department for any type of fracture, including buccal fractures. Um, and so um, getting from 53 to 23 minutes is, is, is really helpful. Um, and then there was another study that was published by Holdgate in 2010, um, and this was a, a prospective study, um, and they gave intranasal fentanyl to children between the ages of 1 and 15, again, with any kind of acute pain in the emergency department, um, and their time to analgesia decreased from 63 to 32 minutes. And they also found that younger children were, were more likely to appropriately receive opioid analgesia. Um, so th I think this is, we, we rarely see changes and differences like this in medicine. Um, um, so this is really a dramatic improvement. Um, let's see what happened to me here. Okay. Yuck. I think I just, I just got separated from you guys. I might have to do this, see if this will work. Okay. Um, so not only is it fast, it's also effective. Um, so this graph comes from another study that was done by Meredith Borland in Australia. Um, this was a really nicely done study. It was a prospective, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial in a tertiary pediatric ED. Um, they, the only thing that wasn't perfect about it was that they enrolled a convenience sample, um, and it was slightly older children aged 7 to 15 um, who had clinically deformed long bone fractures. And I cannot believe that they convinced um, people to do this, but they were actually able to enroll 67 children in a study in which every child had an IV and received either IV morphine and intranasal placebo or IV placebo and intranasal fentanyl. So they both got something IV and something intranasally. Australia is amazing. Um, and so you can see from the slide, they were looking, this is looking at um, visual analog scale, which is a way of marking, um, assessing pain in children. Um, and you can see that the pain control was pretty equivalent between intranasal fentanyl and IV morphine. So they saw no statistically significant differences in pain um, between the two treatment arms. They, they randomized half the kids to get the morphine and half the kids to get to the intranasal fentanyl. Um, and so their pain was the same before analgesia and then at 5, 10, 20, and 30 minutes after analgesia. And when there were no serious adverse events. Um, so just as effective as IV morphine. Beautiful. And this is another study that um, was, was published in 2010. This was a study that was done in England, um, and they looked at 81 patients aged 1 to 16 years, so they had younger kids presenting with severe pain, mostly fractures, to the pediatric ED. Um, 
<clears throat> the average time to drug administration was 10 minutes. They got their patient's pain control within 10 minutes. Amazing. Um, and they just looked at effectiveness of intranasal fentanyl. Um, there was only one patient that required further opiate analgesia after that first dose. There were no complications, and there was very high parent or carer satisfaction score. Um, and if you guys kind of, it's a little hard to see this, but um, the the black lines, the, the tallest lines on the on each at each time point, um, represent the VAS scores, the visual analog score assessment of pain, um, pre-administration at five minutes and at thirty minutes for kids at different ages. So you can see that um, across the board, um, there's a significant decrease in pain at five minutes and then even more at thirty minutes with intranasal fentanyl. So that kind of leads me to talk a little bit about the clinical application of, of, of IN fentanyl. Um, so the dose, the optimal dose is 1.5 to 2 micrograms per kilo, which fits with our um, IN dose being two times the IV dose rule, right? Because for the IV, we do one microgram per kilogram. Um, the onset of action is, is in 10 to 20 minutes, so it's not instantaneous. Um, and the duration of action is about 30 minutes. So you're going to get better and better pain control as time goes on. So not only can you get a pain medication on pretty early, you have pain control for a little while, which is really nice. And this is um, another study. This was done in New Zealand. Um, so not only do we have to leave this country politically, we also have to leave this country in order to give intranasal medications. Um, anyway, um, so, so this is a study that um, looked at a small number, 46 children aged 1 to 3, that came to the pediatric ED with pain after injury, and they were given 1.5 mics per kilo of intranasal fentanyl. And they looked at FLAC um, scores. If you guys are familiar with that, that's um, a way of assessing pain as well in younger children using various behavioral parameters. Um, so the FLAC scores were 8 before medication. Medication, um, two, um, 10 minutes after intranasal fentanyl, and zero, 30 minutes after intranasal fentanyl. Um, so, so pretty effective in that, that age group. And there were no adverse events. Um, there are definitely some limitations of the intranasal fentanyl literature that you guys should know about. Um, there was a Cochrane review published in 2014. <clears throat> that was trying to look at um, intranasal fentanyl versus really any other pharmacological or non-pharmacological intervention for the treatment of pain in children aged 18 years. Um, they only found three studies with a total of 313 patients that met the inclusion criteria, and all those studies were done in Australia. Um, so there are, are not a lot, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> there are not a lot of good studies in the emergency department and pre-hospital setting. Um, most of the studies were done in children over the age of three. The studies were done in a different country, so it's a little hard to know how they would affect, how they would extrapolate to our population, although I, I venture to say it's pretty similar. Um, and all the studies were done for um, pain, mostly, mo all the studies that they included in the Cochrane Review were done for pain that was related to injury um, and not related to medical pain. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't studies that relate to medical pain, because I presented some of those to you guys a couple of minutes ago, but those weren't deemed to be um, appropriate for inclusion in the Cochrane Review. So just to know that there's still more work to be done in this, on this area. Um, the, the other... Uh, intranasal medication for pain that I want to briefly mention um, is intranasal ketamine. Um, 
And I've never used intranasal ketamine, so I just want to preface it with that. Um, but I, I think it's kind of a cool idea, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it up a little bit. Um, so we talked about the fact that ketamine is not 100% absorbed intranasally. Do you guys remember how what the bioavailability was? 40 to 50%, right? Um, so you need to obviously adjust your doses above the IV and IM doses if your goal is dissociative anesthesia. Um, but basically, with lower doses of ketamine given intranasally, you can achieve pain control and anxiolysis, and then you can achieve dissociative anesthesia with higher doses. Again, I haven't used this, um, but I think it's pretty cool. Um, so, and you guys are probably aware that ketamine is being used in adult patients to treat a whole bunch of things, um, from acute pain to chronic pain to depression to migraines. Um, and a lot of that is an attempt to get away from opioid use and overuse. Um, we use ketamine all the time in the emergency department um, for mostly for fracture reductions and laceration repair. We usually give it either IM um, or IV. The downside to giving it IM is that it has a very long duration of action, but it's a great option in younger children. Um, so intranasal ketamine is being studied more and more in kids. Um, there was a study published by Yeeman in 2013 that looked at intranasal ketamine for pain from isolated limb injuries in kids aged 3 to 13 presenting to the ED. Um, it was a convenient sample of 28 participants, um, and they gave a dose of 1 milligram per kilogram and found a significant decrease in pain ratings at 30 minutes. Um, and one-third of participants required additional opioid analgesia. Um, most of the patients had some transient mild adverse effects, a little bit of dizziness, um, but there were no significant adverse effects and no airway effects. So just something to keep in our armamentarium. Um, this, I think, is, is pretty interesting. So this is a big, well, um, it was a well-funded study um, called the Pitchfork Trial. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, any guesses about what that stands for? Yes. So it's pain in children, fentanyl or ketamine trial. Very good. Dr. House gets some candy, some imaginary candy. Okay. Um, so they, uh, they randomized um, their 80 patients um, to receive either fentanyl or ketamine intranasally. Um, and all of the subjects also got ibuprofen, um, which I also have to say before I go on that that is my favorite medication in the whole wide world. And if Adam Weinstein was here, we could have a throwdown. But um, <laughs> um, anyway, so... They give they gave IN fentanyl to half of the kids, and they give IN ketamine to the other half of the kids. Um, and both groups had clinically significant reductions in their visual analog score pain pain readings. Um, and they had to, they had wanted to see at least a twenty millimeter difference, and eighty percent of subjects in both groups um, exceeded that difference. Um, Patients were uh, satisfied with the treatment. Um, everybody had analgesic effect to 60 minutes after post-administration. Um, there was a higher rate of mild adverse effects with the intranasal ketamine. Again, that was mostly dizziness and drowsiness, and those were mild. Um, no patients developed any unwanted sedation, and there were no cases of emergence phenomena or distress from hallucinations, which is what happens when you wake up from intranasal or from intramuscular or IV ketamine. Who, who wants to try intranasal ketamine? Is anyone excited about it? Does anyone think it's a good idea? I'm kind of into it. I think we should try it. All right. Any other questions um, right now about intranasal medications for pain control? I'm going to move on. Matt wants to try it? 
Dr. Braga. Oh, <laughs> excellent point, excellent point. We all need a dose today. Okay. All right. This thing happened again, so we're going to try this again. All right. Okay. So the next big use for intranasal medications is for sedation and anxiolysis. You are not even looking at what I'm looking at at all. I see what happened. Okay. Wait. I can do this. I can do this. It's stuck. I'm stuck. Well, I'm, I'm not stuck. My, my view is stuck. Any, any suggestions? Listen, Sam. <laughs> Sam. Oh, resume slideshow. I think, yeah, it does, but it's not. Okay, should I escape? It's the Ru so does anyone else think that it was the Russians? I was saying Putin all night last night. Oh, wait, um. <laughs> Uh, there. Oh, look oh, at that. Sam just touched it and she fixed it. <laughs> All better. <laughs> She's amazing. Yay. Thank you, Sam. Okay. Um, right. So while, while there may be some children out there that can meditate to manage their anxiety, I have never met any of them. Um, so many of them, most of them are, are more like the dude on the other side of the screen who just wants you to get away from him. Um, and so for those children, we have some intranasal options. Um, midazolam, as you guys know, is a GABA receptor agonist um, that has been shown to be safe and effective for use in children to prevent anxiety and to provide pre-anesthetic sedation. Um, and dexmedetomidine is an alpha-2 agonist that can also provide anxiolysis um, and sedation. And then we'll talk a little bit about intranasal ketamine since I'm into it today. Um, and so but I just wanted to show this. this. You don't need to look at this at all. Um, but I just wanted to just put this up here because I, I wrote a, a review about... Um, about sedation for imaging studies in 2009, so that was seven years ago, um, and I had only the only little mention I had of intranasal medications was the little part that's circled in red, and so you can see that in the past seven years there's been a huge amount of progress in in, um, in using intranasal medications for this purpose. So intranasal sedatives and anxiolytics are used for a variety of things. They're used a lot for preoperative sedation or induction in the anesthesia literature is what it's called. Um, they're used to help us acquire images like MRI, sometimes CT, even echo. Um, we use them a lot in the ED for laceration repair. <clears throat> We actually, um, I love using a little intranasal midazolam for IV placement. Um, I actually used intranasal midazolam in a teenager who had acute appendicitis um, last week, um, not because I thought it would help with her pain, but because she was so anxious and dysregulated um, that I knew that surgery residents would not be able to deal with her exam and would blow her off. So... <laughs> Now, it also helped her a lot, um, and so it, it was it was actually really beautiful to watch how much calmer and better she felt and how she kind of tolerated being in the emergency department um, with intranasal Versed. And then it's actually used a lot in dental procedures, which I find kind of scary because there are a lot of pediatric dentists who are apparently giving more sedatives than we can give on our inpatient pediatric unit without anesthesia. Um, <clears throat> but that's a different topic. 
So um, this is a study that was published in the dental literature, um, which again has kind of the most data about intranasal medication for anxiolysis and mild anxiolysis and mild sedation. Um, and so this graph looks at the onset of action of intranasal um, midazolam versus oral midazolam. So intranasal is in blue and oral is in green. And in this study, they enrolled 30 healthy children between the ages of 4 and 10. And they found that the average onset time of the intranasal midaz was 12 minutes, which was just under half the time of oral midazolam. And interestingly, they found that children were significantly more alert after the procedure with intranasal administration route. Um, so only 67% were drowsy with intranasal as opposed to 97% being drowsy with oral midazolam. Um, how many of you guys have used oral midazolam? So that's something we do fairly, we used to do fairly frequently in pediatrics. I feel like we kind of used it in those situations where we, we didn't have any other option and we wanted to calm somebody down and we didn't really know what else to do. Um, and I'm just going to posit that using the intranasal form of midazolam in those situations um, is more effective uh, more rapidly um, and is a really, is a really, probably a better option. <laughs> and I apologize for all the coughing. I have some kind of weird fluy illness. Okay, so um, this is, these are from a very old study that was published in 97, but I thought it was, um, just gave us, a, again, a good graphic representation of the onset um, or, or the serum concentration of IV versus IN midazolam. And so you can see, um, just as we looked at with fentanyl, when you give midazolam IV, there's a really rapid, quick peak, um, and then um, and then the, the levels in the blood go down, versus when you give it IN, you have this kind of nicer rise, a little slower rise, but then serum concentrations remain higher for longer. And again, we talked about the fact that um, IN fentanyl doesn't cross the respiratory depression threshold, and the same is true of IN midazolam. So again, safety. So what's the optimal dose of IN midazolam? Um, this is a really old study, but I think it's cool. Um, so in 1992, Yili published a retrospective review of intranasal midazolam in 40 children that were undergoing laceration repair. Um, they, were, they were young. They were between 12 months and 6 years old, um, and they used either topical or injected lidocaine for topical anesthesia in, in almost all the kids. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. I your challenge sometimes in med safety when people want to use an alternate route, and it's not listed in EDH's alternate route. Could you just flip back to that last slide? Do you see how easy it would be for a nurse to give something IV instead of intranasal if it was listed in the MAR that way? I do. And the hazard is they might get two times the appropriate dose. For DADP, they get 10 times the appropriate dose. So while it may be safe in a research trial, you really need to consider that there might be some other fault. Well, well, I would say, from a safety perspective, this is a great time to talk about this, this topic. Um, we, so we now have the ability to give fentanyl and midazolam nasally. So there's a drop-down menu when you order those medications, and you can select to give them nasally. 
However, I think it would be much safer to have a whole separate entry in EDH that said nasal midazolam, because you're right. I don't have the option of ordering it that way. And Jeff's, Jeff's kind of smiling and, and going, she's crazy. But from a safety perspective, I completely agree with you. But I don't think that we should not offer this safe, effective medication because we can't figure out how to use our EMR. <laughs> um, what we have done with other medications is we've actually declared those alternate routes. It's the same with oral decadron. Mercy's alternate route spelled out, which is her key that something's different about this. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's great. So or his key. IV form of it, right? It's very understandable how someone could see the dose and just administer it. So by using techniques like that, we can keep it safe. Mm -hmm. But I will say we can't just adopt a route with no evidence. So when you ask us to change EDH, we will always ask, can you give us some citations that show this is effective and safe? And we do this all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, we've, we've, we've been able to add the nasal administration route for midazolam and fentanyl, um, but you're bringing up an issue of safety and, and, and the nursing staff not seeing clearly that it's a different, a different administration route. And from my perspective, that's silly and that's dangerous and um, th we need to fix that. Um, and that's, again, that's the case with oral decadron as well. I can order decadron, which is the IV concentration, to be given orally, but as far as I'm, as I can tell, the nurses don't get any special. So I have to, I mean, I always have a conversation with the nurse every single time I order a medication. Um, but I, I would hope that our EMR would be able to also help us with these safety concerns. Yeah. Unfortunately, in our units, often the orders are yeah. remotely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I, I mean, uh, we'll stop talking about this in a moment, but I think rather than saying we can't do it because our, our system doesn't allow it, we should change the system. And there's literature, and, and we gotta we got to take better care of kids. So anyway, that, thank you, Sam, for that. Um, so this is, again, an old study that looked at the optimal dose of intranasal midazolam, um, and <clears throat> it was a retrospective review, um, but they found that in doses between 0.2 and 0.3 mg per kg, um, only a quarter of kids had adequate sedation. In 0.3 to 0.4 mg per kg, 80% um, had adequate sedation. And then in 0.5 to 0.5, 0 0.4 to 0.5 mg per kg, all of them, 100%, had adequate sedation. Um, the onset of sedation um, was 12 minutes, um, plus or minus four. Um, a recovery took 40 minutes. Um, and so all of these patients were discharged in less than an hour, which I thought was incredible. And so uh, for me, this has led to a change in practice from using intram intramuscular ketamine which I used to use a lot for laceration repair in young kids, um, to now using a combination of intranasal midazolam and the LET lidocaine, epinephrine, and tetracaine topical gel. Um, and, and with the, the combination of those two medications, um, we're getting really, really good results. It's well-tolerated. Kids are comfortable. Um, and we don't have to keep them for four hours afterwards to watch them. Um, so IN midazolam clinical application, um, we want to use the 5 milligram per ml concentration, which is, again, kind of going to, to Sam's point, um, you really have to be careful when you order this medication um, that you understand what concentration you're using. You want to use the highest concentration that we have for intranasal administration in order to get um, the lowest volume. 
Um, and I just want to quickly mention there, some people have talked about, should you just give a lower dose first um, and then give a second dose if, if you need to? Um, and there have been some studies of this that, that, that works fine, except that you're just giving a dose that you know is not going to be effective and then having to give another dose. And so the recommendation, um, th there are a bunch of studies of this, the recommendation is basically that you just give the effective dose the first time and then you don't have to worry about giving giving it multiple times um, this was a study of intranasal midazolam in the pediatric ED setting um, it was another retrospective review um, of young children um, they actually enrolled 205 children aged 1 to 60 months that's really young I don't use this in kids under the age of one thank you Dan <laughs> um, so they used the the recommended dose of 0.4 mg per keg of IN midazolam um, most of the children um, achieved adequate anxiolysis. Um, 11 of them, which was 5%, needed an additional medication to complete the procedure. Um, and there were no adverse events in the children who received only intranasal midazolam, um, including no adverse events related to NPO status. I'm not going to talk about that too much, but we kind of think about NPO status when we're giving sedatives. Um, and even children who had eaten within the previous two hours didn't have any adverse events. Uh, okay, um, so topical lidocaine pretreatment. I haven't quite gotten there in the ED, but I, I think it's awesome. And now, now that I've looked at the literature, I'm going to really try. Um, so a common symptom associated with intranasal midazolam is nasal burning for 30 to 60 seconds. And so when we give it, we need to tell parents to expect that um, so they're not surprised when their child cries when we give it. And so there have been um, several studies that show that administration of lidocaine before the midazolam um, decreases the burning sensation. And um, Smith just published a double-blinded randomized placebo-controlled trial um, if, with children aged 6 to 12 who were getting intranasal midazolam for sedation in a pediatric ED. Um, and so they basically either got 4% lidocaine or saline via that mucosal atomization device. Um, and they, they they could be it can get, be given by the child or by their parent, um, and those who received the lidocaine reported less discomfort. Um, and there are a bunch of other studies that show that that's effective, so that's a good option. Um, it's a little tricky because um, those of you guys who have given the flu vaccine intranasally, maybe um, it, it's pretty well tolerated, but it, some kids find it odd and, and awkward to get something up their nose. I've actually had kids who. Um, chose to, they said they wanted an IV rather than getting something up their nose, um, which I think when they actually went through the process, they realized that the getting something up their nose wasn't as bad as it sounded, but I, it, it's, it's kind of weird. People are afraid of it. And so I, I think on one hand, if you give the lidocaine, you decrease the burning, the whole experience is better. But then if you give the lidocaine, you're giving two different things. So you have to have them submit to the spraying twice. So sometimes it's better to just do it once. Um, you know, kind of, uh, for me, I think it's worth a try. Um, all right, I want to talk a little bit about dexmedetomidine, which is also known as Presidex. Um, it's a relatively selective alpha-2 adrenergic agonist with some sedative pro properties. Um, it works in the CNS and the locus ceruleus and basically induces EEG activity that looks like normal sleep, which is pretty awesome. Um, it also causes a decrease in heart rate and blood pressure, which you'd expect with an alpha-2 agonist based on, um, you can see, the physiology. Um, but, but the bradycardia and mild hypotension doesn't, isn't in a range that requires intervention. It's just something we should be aware of, just like we know that ketamine is going to cause um, hypertension and tachycardia. 
Um, actually, some people have used quantidine, which is another alpha agonist intranasally, um, mostly for pre-anesthetic induction. And so it hasn't really been studied in the ED, but it's interesting to me that dexamed and clonidine have both been used kind of for the same purpose. Um, <clears throat> So why would you think about using IN Dexmed rather than midazolam? Um, it doesn't cause the nasal burning. Um, it doesn't cause any respiratory depression. Um, it causes less confusion and can, can lead to a little bit deeper sedation. Um, but I think it's really important to, to remember that it doesn't cause amnesia. One of the great things about midazolam is that it, it provides amnesia. And so when, when kids have, we know that when kids are anxious and in pain, they have really strong memories. And so um, for me, the, the amnestic piece of midazolam is really important. And also, Dexmed has a longer onset and duration of action. Um, so the situation that I've, I've thought about using this most is in kids who've had paradoxical reactions to benzos before um, who need to have some anxiolysis, and that can be kids with autism spectrum disorder, um, developmental delay that, that some, for some reason have this paradoxical reaction to benzos. Um, so this is just a study looking at oral midazolam versus nasal Dexmed. Um, this is a... <laughs> <laughs> a randomized controlled study of children um, who got, got these medications for induction of anesthesia, um, and they found that Dexmed was more effective at inducing sleep and equivalent to oral midaz um, and easier to administer because the kid could not resist or spit it out. She just give it really quickly. So this is mostly kind of been used in the preoperative anesthetic um, setting, but um, this was another study that was published this year that compares intranasal Dexmed with intranasal Midaz for anxiolysis for laceration repair for young kids in the pediatric ED. It was another double-blind randomized controlled trial. They enrolled 40 patients aged 1 to 3, and they got either 0.4 mg per kg of intranasal Midaz or 2 mics per kilo of intranasal Dexmed. Um, and they basically had lower rates of anxiety in the kids who got Dexmed um, compared with Midaz. This is kind of a funny way that they that they made this graph. They wanted to show us who was not anxious as opposed to who was anxious. Um, but you can see that the gray bars, which are the kids who got Dexmed, were, were less anxious at all points in the study. Um, so the recommended dose for sedation is two mics per kilo intranasally. Um, it, has, uh, it takes longer to take effect um, and has a longer duration of action. Just to remember that you will be waiting for your child to wake up for a little bit longer. Um, and there have been studies, again, in the pre-anesthetic induction literature looking at different doses, and it looks like the two mics per kg is the, the best dose in that setting. Um, and then we talked about ion ketamine for pain control, so a little bit about ion ketamine for sedation. Um, so the dose for anxiolysis is lower, 5 to 6 mg per kg, and the dose to really try to get dissociative anesthesia is 9 to 10 mg per kg. I have to tell you that I, my kids were looking at the slides last night, and they came to this slide, and they were like, what happened to that kid? <laughs> they were very concerned. <laughs> so that's just a picture of a child who, was, who had received ketamine. Um, so, you know, I haven't, again, I haven't used this. I think this is kind of interesting to talk about. I, I, haven't, I haven't quite gotten there yet. I... Um, but uh, so, so there are some different suggestions about how to actually use intranasal ketamine. So one is that you plan to titrate. So you start with six mg per kg. Um, and then if you need to give another dose, you can give another dose of 10 minutes. Um, and the other, the, other, the other suggestion is that you combine intranasal ketamine with intranasal midazolam. 
I don't know that anybody outside of the kind of ED setting is going to be really thinking about using these medications, um, but just want to let you know that it's, it's kind of out there. And then um, this was this was a, a dental study actually um, where they compared intranasal midazolam, dexmedetomidine, and ketamine um, in pretty young kids who didn't want to have their teeth messed with, and they compared um, some different doses of dexmed to midaz and ketamine, um, and they found a faster onset of sedation with the midaz or the ketamine as opposed to the dexmed, which we talked about. Um, no significant difference in success rates. Um, we talked about a little bit of hypotension um, and bradycardia with dexmed, um, a little less analgesia with midaz, and no significant adverse effects. So these are sort of all on the table, and they have slightly different um, profiles, but it's helpful to know that they're all out there. Um, and then really briefly, I wanted to mention nasal midazolam for seizures, um, which this is definitely not um, not my focus, um, but there was a, a review that Brigo published last year, um, and they looked at 19 studies that involved 1,933 seizure events, um, so a, a pretty big study, and they concluded that um, non-IV midazolam, so that was either intranasal or buccal midazolam, was as effective <coughs> and safe as intravenous or rectal diazepam in terminating early status epilepticus in children. Um, and times from arrival in the emergency department to drug administration and seizure, seizure cessation were shorter with the non-IV midazolam than with either IV diazepam or rectal diastep. So this is a picture of kind of the nasal kit that families are sent home with um, to give intranasal midazolam at home to stop seizures. Um, the dose is 0.2 mg per keg, and again, can be given at home, um, pre-hospital or in the hospital. Okay, and then I just, this is very brief. I don't know if anybody saw it, doesn't even know what this picture is from. My kids also saw this picture. I was like, <laughs> you're not allowed to look at my slides anymore. <laughs> um... So anyone, did anyone see this when this came out? This was, uh, this was from an article published in Rolling Stone in 2014 um, that was titled The New Face of Heroin. Um, so uh, more people died from drug overdoses in 2014 than in any year on record, um, and the majority of overdose deaths involve an opioid. Um, from 2000, 2000 to 2014, nearly half a million people died from drug overdoses. 78 Americans die every day um, from an opioid overdose. And uh, Vermont is basically a pipeline between Canada and New York and Boston. Um, so especially Vermont is, uh, sees, has a huge amount of heroin use. Um, and we think about people with opiate addiction um, being adults maybe older teenagers, um, but more and more younger children are being affected as well. Um, and Julie Gaither just published a retrospective analysis, kind of came through on my email feed. Um, they looked at a national representative sample of U.S. pediatric hospital discharge records from 97 through 2012, so it was a 16-year time period. Um, there were 13,000 admissions, again, in kids um, aged 1 to 19 um, for prescription opioid poisonings. Um, and during the 16-year period, hospitalizations attributed to opioid poisonings rose nearly twofold in the pediatric population, um, and the highest increases were in children aged 1 to 4 um, and older adolescents aged 15 to 19. So these are people we take care of. These are kids we take care of. Um, I also thought about including, I don't know if anyone saw the picture of um, the, the two parents passed out from heroin overdose with their young child in the backseat of the car. 
So it's our, it's our patients and it's their parents, um, and intranasal, um, naloxone or Narcan, um, is a life-saving intervention in those children. Unfortunately, I heard that the, the this kind of two-prong, this, this mucosal atomization device for giving naloxone was just recalled, um, because of a problem. It wasn't actually atomizing. So hopefully that will be fixed soon. Um, but I just want to say that, um, naloxone is safe, um, in kids and even in neonates, um, has a shorter half-life in neonates. Um, and so you need to redose it, um, especially for long-acting opiates. But, um, this is another, I can't, I can't give a talk about intranasal medications without talking about intranasal Narcan and how important it is. Um, so this is kind of my little summary slide with um, the doses that we talked about of the medications for pain control, um, sedation, um, and briefly seizures and opiate overdose, overdose that can be given intranasally. That is the end. <laughs> Sholene's hand went up first. If we have to wait for it to come from the pharmacy, it will take forever. <laughs> uh, I think Dan was next. Thank you for that. Uh, this is really neat stuff. And by the way, if you think you're old now, about the side effects or adverse effects in some of the studies that you mentioned. Number one, they're not powered for that sufficiently. Uh, so I don't think they should be making those statements. And number two, in the retrospective studies, you have no idea if the methodology was sufficient to elucidate adverse effects. So uh, it, it's really a sore point for me when I see that statement in those kinds of studies. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I didn't talk too much about monitoring, um, but I think it's, it's a really important, it's a really important issue. And it's something that I struggle with a little bit, um, because we have such strict, um, monitoring requirements for kind of full sedation. Um, this doesn't really fall into that category, but, but I, it's, it's unclear. I, I agree. It's unclear to me, um, what the appropriate monitoring is for these medications. So it's a good point. So right now, are you guys using a monitoring protocol that's similar to what you would use for that medication if it was being given a different route? Like, I assume you're doing the full anesthesia monitoring for Presidex. Well, so I haven't done Presidex. I haven't done, I've never given intranasal Presidex, and I don't even know if our pharmacy yet, Jeff says no. <laughs> well, right now, that's one that you can't because it's a large infusion volume. Um, and so we don't have vials that you would need in order to... Yeah, I was at a, conference at Brown and, and um, there was a lecture about this topic and we had the same thing is happening there. So I mean, this is, this is evolving. So I would say for fentanyl and for midazolam, um, when each or either of those medications is given individually, there are no monitoring parameters. Um, so I basically put the, put my patients on a pulse ox, um, but they're, but they're not when they're, unless you give both a benzo um, and an opiate together, it's not considered sedation and analgesia. Other questions, comments? So that you mentioned <clears throat> the amnestic properties of benzodiazepines, and the, there's a sort of growing body of evidence that in um, the elderly population, there's significant cognitive effects post-midazolam, hmm. post-procedure for days or weeks. So I, I do wonder if there's going to be a benefit to dexmedetomidine. Yes, you lose the amnesia, but are we preventing some of these other things that we don't? I mean, there are cavity receptors. 
Interesting. All right. Thank you, everybody.